work all the time. Um, it's just, I mean, maybe you know two or three people who just really have a great relationship with their boss. But on the whole, that relationship is hard. People feel like management is just no good. Like, when have you ever had a good manager at a job? Um, I had one of my most difficult uh, was one of my first bosses, my first full-time job after I got out of school. And the real difficulty was not that he was bad or selfish um, or money-grubbing or any of these things. The only problem was that he was a Yankee. <laughs> that is not a problem in itself unless it's wed to me being this uh, severely insecure Southern boy uh, that I'm just like my bread and my butter is... Uh, affirmation, like verbal affirmation. And this man, being a through and through Bostonian, had none. In fact, he had very few words in general. So I'd come, I'd show up to work with Joe Buckley, and uh, we were in construction. He, he had a small little uh, residential construction business, and we did little things like fixing kitchens and bathrooms and painting walls, stuff like this. Show up to work in the morning, and I'm a morning person, so I'm good to go. Hey, Joe, how you doing, man? Yeah, yeah. Literally, that's how he greeted me almost every morning. So, Joe, how's you? How how'd you do? I mean, what was your night like? You doing okay? Yeah, yeah. A lot of woods this morning, huh, Corby? That was a lot of words this morning, huh, Corby? See, that's a translation. Lots of it had to be translated, huh? Joe, uh, Joe didn't speak much, and, uh, and that really came to bite me and particularly brought physical harm upon me in one particular instance. We were moving this gigantic, uh, oh, what is the word? I forgot in the last, radiator. Is that the word? Yeah, one of those big cast iron ones. Anybody lived in an old house before that still had cast iron radiators? I mean, this thing was at least six feet long by three feet high. And, if that, and you're talking cast iron, so it's hundreds of pounds, right? Not able to be lifted. We had hired this trash removal service to get all this stuff out because we had done all this demo. And the guys were like, I don't know, guy. I don't think we're taking that thing. And Joe's like, yeah, get it in the truck. We're like, all right, I guess we're taking it. Here we go. So the, coal, the plan was it was laying. We kind of like walked it out from, and laid it on the, um, on the driveway. And, uh, and the goal was to, to lay up two-by-fours from the driveway into the truck, tip the thing up, lay them on the two-by-fours, and run them up. And the other two trash removal guys were like, hey, buddy, come on, just leave it, okay? And he's like, nah, get it toward in your truck, let's go. And so I'm thinking, like, how are we going to do this? I'm getting a little nervous. It's going to be quite a deadlift. And so I'm kind of getting my, uh, trying to get my feet. Where am I going to stand? How am I, do I have a good hand? Hold up kind of get under one corner of this thing, but because it's on an uneven driveway, it's got a little bit of a teeter in it. And so I kind of get up under, is that where I'm going to hold my hands? And all of a sudden, of course, without any word, Joe lifts on the opposite corner, and hundreds of pounds of cast iron come striking my finger and absolutely explode it. It was awful. And I jump up, because I'm a kind Christian man, <laughs> who's patient with my boss's failures and shortcomings, I only dog-cussed him a little. <laughs> Joe, I can't believe that. If you would ever just talk, then I would know what is going to happen. And I'm just jumping and yelling. And finally, we go to the hospital. I get my fingers sewn up. It's bad. We don't, I mean, we kind of don't talk about it the rest of the day. I go home and rehab. I come back to work, and I walk in. And I said, morning, Joe. Eh, eh. 
Joe, uh, I said some things to you that I'm really, uh, I'm really sorry about. I just want to apologize. I, I was really inappropriate. Huh. 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 Uh, will, will you forgive me, Joe? <laughs> oh, Corby, if you had had a gun, I would have been dead. No last wishes or nothing. Dead. You're right, Joe. I'm sorry. You would have been. Almost none of us have good bosses, right? It's a difficult thing to work under another person. Um, but the truth of it is, it's not, it's, it's really, it's actually not the boss that we're working for, right? None of us actually work for a person, a boss, or a customer. We actually work for what we hope that person can give to us. We work for the customer's approval. We work for the, the money the boss can give us or the raise that we can get or the sense of, um, of accomplishment we can, we can attain. John Steinbeck in his novel, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, talks about this kind of master, this kind of unseen master. It's a book about um, farmers uh, and during the Great Depression in the United States, so in the 30s, um, in the Midwestern Dust Bowl, they, had, they owned this land. They've been farming it for generations, but, um, but there's been no rain, and uh, they've got, therefore they have no crops, and they can't pay the debts on their land. And so the bank men come, and it's time for the bank to reclaim their land because they've taken out debt against their land. Um, and so they're coming to reclaim the land. And the farmers, wanting to find someone to, to take this up with, Say, sure, cried the tenant man, the farmers, but it's our land. We were born on it, and we got killed on it, died on it. Even if it's no good, it's still ours. That's what makes ownership, not a paper with numbers on it. We're sorry, said the bank man. It's not us. It's the monster. The bank isn't like a man. Yes, but the bank is only made of men, say the farmers. No, you're wrong there, quite wrong. The bank is something else than men. It happens that every man in a bank hates what the bank does. And yet, the bank does it. The bank is something more than men, I tell you. It's the monster. Men made it, but they can't control it. The bank, the monster, has to have profits all the time. It can't wait. It'll die. When the monster stops growing, it dies. It can't stay one size. You see how they're talking about a master that they all live under? A master that, that, that rolls over people, that destroys human life, that they've submitted themselves to. It's the bank. It's the monster. It can't even stop growing. It can't stay static. It must keep growing. If it doesn't have profits, it dies. It's not my fault. It's, it's this bank. Notice how this master that these men serve, they hate this master. It says, no men who work for the bank like what it does, but nevertheless, there it is. They hate this master. This master is fragile. You see, the master must have profits. The master is, uh, by definition, a master of deficit, that it exists in deficit. It needs to be fed. It needs to be sacrificed to in order to continue to exist. And this master destroys human life. Jesus offers us 
an invitation. He says, come to me. Come to me, when, if, uh, you who are weary and heavy laden. And you will find rest for your, for your souls. Learn from me. Take my yoke. Take my burden, he offers us. Our problem is that we work for the wrong master. I was talking to uh, Mr. Bob Brun this week, um, and uh, who's sitting right over here, and he was reminding me of uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, Crazy Busy. Uh, and, uh, and it's a book about, as the title suggests, being crazy busy. And one of the things he uh, mentions in there is a, um, is a survey done of elementary school-aged kids about their parents. Kids, how are your parents doing, essentially? What do you think the parents gave their kids? If you're going to make a grade, what, do, what grade do you think elementary school kids in America gave their parents, typically? Shout it out. B, 100. Man, KD is confident. I like it. 100, a B. Anybody else? They all sound the same when you do it that way. They all end in E, except for A. Yeah. Um, they actually gave them pretty high grades. Pretty high grades on my parents. I know my parents love me. My parents show affection to me. Do you know one? There was one area they got really low grades on consistently. Anger management. <laughs> Anger management. The kids graded their parents very low on that one. Very low indeed. And uh, the the, prim- the uh, you know Kevin DeYoung calls this uh, parents living um, with secondhand stress. So that that anger that spills out on the people that you love most, the secondhand stress. So it doesn't matter if you're a parent, that, that stuff spills out on people around you, whether it's roommates or, parent, or, or, or your own parents or, or your closest friends. It's going to spill out uh, in, in different places. Secondhand stress from living under the wrong masters. I said that most of us, that we don't live, we don't work actually for our boss, but we work for what our bosses can give us. We work... Um, you know, so if our goal is, uh, is to, to gain money, you know, the, the three big kind of masters that we typically work for, money, relationships, and power, um, most of the things that we work for can be broken down somewhere in those categories, money, relationships, and power. Uh, so if you work for money and you fail that master, that master tells you you are worthless, Right? The master makes you in his own image. That master tells you you are worthless if you fail him or her. The relationships and sex, if you fail those, if you don't have the right friends, if you can't um, have the right activities with, uh, with in, in a romantic relationship, if you fail that master, that master tells you you are rejected. The success is your master of, of power, of gaining accomplishments is what you want, of getting things done. Success is your master and you fail that master, you are a loser. You see, our masters, um, our masters grind us down when we choose these wrong masters. Here's the solution of recent times. I think that's been something our world has acknowledged. Oh yeah, you can't live for money. That's terrible. We learned that growing up under baby boomer parents. Thank you, boomers. And we said, no, money's no good. We can't do that. That's a joke. I love baby boomers. Um, can't live on, up for money. That's, that's ridiculous. We can't, we can't climb the corporate ladder. All these things we're seeing, oh, those fail, those fail. And you know what the master that we've chosen for ourselves, this, uh, this generation, my generation and younger? Just ask Tinkerbell. 
with a little bit of faith, luck, pixie dust, and some belief in yourself, you too can have adventures and be unstoppable. We're going to believe in ourselves. I want to set my own standards. I'm not going to live up to money. I'm going to decide what happiness is, and I'm going to live that way. I'm going to decide what's important in life and do those things. But who can live up to that? I mean, if money is a crushing master, no one lives up to their own expectations for themselves. No one lives up to their own standards. No one at all. In an interview with Vogue magazine, Madonna, the uh, musical artist, says this. I think it's incredibly insightful. I totally lifted this from someone else, so uh, if you've heard it before, forgive me. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I think Madonna is far more insightful and honest than most of us. She says she serves a master who is... Uh, who essentially lacks. She has a ma- serves a master that says, I am nobody until I do something substantial. And she says it never ends. As soon as I accomplish something, i got to start over. And it's again and again. And that's a master who will leave you burdened and weary, exhausted. Plenty of secondhand stress poured out on the people you love there. Our work and our rest are not producing what we want. We're becoming people who are weary and angry and ground down. And that's exactly what Jesus speaks into in our passage. Exactly um, what he seeks, where he seeks to meet us today. See, Jesus is the only master who gives real rest. Because no one else's master is gentle and powerful. No one else's master says, I am humble of heart. I'm gentle. You said, like we said earlier, if you serve money, money will crush you if you fail it. If you serve relationships and you fail it, you will be outcast, unworthy. If you serve success and accomplishment and you fail that master, you will be a loser. You will be worthless. Every other master will crush you when you fail it, but not Jesus. He says, I am humble and I'm gentle. Dr. Ed Clowney says the turning point in scripture is this simple phrase from the book of Jonah, where he says, those who run after other gods, other masters, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. There's no other God but ours that gives grace. Because Jesus says you don't meet the punishment that any other master would give you when you don't do the work. Jesus offers us, learn from me. He says right there, learn from me. So let's turn and look quickly at what it looks like when Jesus works and rests. Consider this for just a moment. Jesus, as we said in our, um, in our statement of faith earlier, uh, is God 
descended from heaven and and has taken on flesh. He's God. And as we see in all of his miraculous acts, he can do anything. He can deliver people out of debilitating sickness. He can deliver people from uh, demonic possession. He He can bring God's word into the lives of his people in a way that opens up and frees and brings joy. He has so much power. What gives him the right to ever stop? What gives Jesus the right to ever stop healing? To ever stop laying his hands on people and saying, be freed from your sins, be freed from your sickness. Why would he ever cease working? That's so unfair. You have all that power. Be careful how you answer that question. Because your answer to why Jesus can stop is the answer you'll use to why you can stop. Some of them are better than others. Excuses don't go very far. Oh, he, he was just, he was a man and he was tired. And if that's my excuse, I'm a man and I'm tired. That's a good excuse. That's fine. And you should take a break. But that doesn't bring you to a place of rest in the same way. If you're just taking a break, then everything is still spinning while you're gone. Everybody is still sick while Jesus is gone and he can't possibly leave that. We know that Jesus didn't just take a break. Because every time Jesus is about to heal somebody or interact with someone in the Gospels, almost every time I should say, um, the Gospel writers are careful to say, Jesus saw the widow and had compassion on her. Jesus looked at the young man and loved him. Jesus saw the man's faith. Jesus looks at people who are hurting. He doesn't turn his back and say, I need to take a break, I need to escape. Jesus walks away in full knowledge that he is forgoing that person's immediate relief. He walks away from his jobs. You see in Mark 6, he says this, And Jesus said to them, his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And Mark tells us, For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Why could Jesus walk away like that? Why could he see and look and see the sickness, see the sadness, see the imprisonment, and walk away and take a break? Why could he rest? What gives him the right to do that? Jesus tells us in John's gospel that my work is to do the will of the one who sent me. His master. His master is his heavenly father. His work is to do the will of the one who sent him. He does not serve a master who lacks. If you serve money, you've got to feed the beast. If, you, if I serve my own self-importance, I've got to keep reinventing myself. If I serve relationships, it's never close enough. It's never enough approval. It's never enough. I've got to keep going. But if you serve the God of the universe, there is no lack in him. There is no lack in the God of the universe, in our Heavenly Father. And He will accomplish His purpose. He will accomplish all that must be done. You see, Jesus' ultimate work, His ultimate work was to bear the burden that you and I can never carry. The psalmist reminds us that, O Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, O Lord, who could stand? 
No one can stand up under that burden. And it's that burden that his heavenly father laid on Jesus on the cross. He took our burden. He took our work, our responsibility on himself. So that he could give us his burden, his right standing with the father, his acceptance, his right work. He took your burden so you could be free from those other masters. He says, there, there, under me as your master, is the only rest. It's the only way you'll be able to look at your job and walk away. If you serve a master who doesn't lack. Now, he does go on to say, I will give you a yoke, my yoke, and my burden. And I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. Wait. That's exactly what he says here. It's, in fact, precisely. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you find yourself perpetually grumpy, you're carrying somebody else's burden. You're serving another master, one who lacks, one who will continue to ask and demand until you are destroyed. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My yoke is well-fitting and my burden is light. He gives us work that fits. So what would you have to give up in order to work well and rest well under Jesus, your master? What would you have to put down? Um, one, uh, one writer, one Christian writer talks about it this way. He talks about breaking contracts. And just like you have a contract, if you've ever worked for a, a boss who says, I will pay you this much and you do this job, we, we form these contracts with our masters, whether they're relational contracts. I won't talk about that if you don't talk about my job. Or, real, or, re, or regular contracts, I will always do this if you, as long as you do that. We're going to have to break some of those contracts. And just like a bad boss, when you come to your boss and say, my grandmother is sick, I've got to go for a couple of days. A bad boss is going to make you pay for that. A bad boss is going to make, uh, you, uh, is going to make you stay, is not, going to, is not going to allow that. A bad boss is not gentle and humble. Let me tell you, we serve bad bosses. The bosses that we've put ourselves under are wicked and selfish, whether they're humans or our own standards or impersonal forces like money, they're wicked bosses, and it's going to cost us to say no to them. They're going to make you pay. It's going to be painful to walk away from them. Here are a few, I hope, tangible ways that we can come to Jesus as he invites us to learn from him so we can break those contracts with wicked bosses. This is uh, something that Eric has, has talked to me about in, on a number of occasions, and I'm really thankful for it, and I continue to mull over it. Um, first, don't give Jesus only your tiredness. He says, come to me, all you who are weary. But if you only come to him when you're weary, um, you're going to find that a difficult proposition. Uh, here's what I mean. Don't try to give up TV to pray. 
then you're just giving Jesus your dregs. You watch TV because you're tired, as Eric says. I don't know lots of lazy Christians, but I know a whole lot of tired ones. And prayer, coming to Jesus' is work. And you're watching TV because you're tired. Don't give them your TV time. Give them your work time. Take off a couple hours one morning and go for a walk. Put down some responsibility that you have the energy to do right then. And spend time with your master, your true master. When you're fresh, when you have energy. And then keep doing that until you want to give up your TV time. Until you say, I don't, why would I try and find rest in TV or in some other distraction? I found real rest here with my Savior. Secondly, get somebody to help you. You know, this practice of taking a break, of resting, of, of looking at our work and backing up from it, and resting by, of body and soul to be with our Savior. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of historians believe that, that that may be one of the primary reasons that Jewish people have been persecuted ever since they've existed. Right? They have a long history of other nations and ethnic peoples hating on the Jews. And that's a big reason why. Because they take a break faithfully one day in seven. And it's super disruptive to any, major, any larger community. What do you mean you can't come do this? I hired you to fix this and you can't come do it? What do you mean you can't come to my kid's birthday party? What do you mean you can't come to this family event? What do you mean you can't come in on, a, on today? And what do you mean you can't stay late? All of these things, when we say no to these masters, it's going to be costly and we need community. The only reason that Jewish people have held fast to that practice is because they, they stick really tight together. You're going to need somebody else to help in this. You're going to need to recruit somebody to pray for you. You're going to need to ask somebody to walk with you through this to help you make these decisions. I mean, it may be great to find like a fellow family in this or a fellow roommate in this and say, all right, we're going to do this together. And so when people think you're weird, they're going to think I'm weird. And when people are mad at you, they're going to be mad at me because we're doing it together. So... Don't give up your TV. Get somebody to help you. And put it in your calendar. Um, this is similar to other ones, but uh, you know, if you try and tell somebody, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I've got to spend some time with Jesus. They're going to scoff at you. I'm sorry, I can't do that. I need, to, uh, I need to do something rejuvenating. Jesus says it's okay for me to not meet your expectations, so I'm going to take that opportunity now. If you try and say that to somebody, they're going to scoff at you. They're going to hate you. You know what you can say, though? I'm sorry. My schedule won't allow it. Our calendars are the ultimate master of everybody. In our culture today, it's totally legit to be ruled by your calendar. I'm sorry. My calendar won't allow me to do that. My schedule won't allow it. Put it in your calendar. Put it down. You don't have to tell them what it's about. Uh, you know, you could call your boss. I need to... Uh, I need to come in a couple hours late for personal reasons. You don't have to tell them I'm going to go spend time with Jesus in prayer and meditation and see if Holy Spirit wants to talk to me this morning. I'm going to look at you like you're crazy. Put it in your calendar. I was um, talking to a friend this week uh, who's moving homes. Not you, Browns, although it reminded me of you guys. They're moving homes too. Uh, 
And I, and, and, uh, I was talking to him. He was, we ran into each other. He was just coming from the new home that they're moving into. And you know how sometimes you have this overlap and you're trying to do all the work you can before you get into the new home. And that's what he was doing. He was like looking ragged. He's like, I just couldn't do it anymore. I've been working all day, going over there till like midnight every night. I'm just so tired. And I was like, oh man, I want to help. I like doing that stuff. Um, let's do that calendar out. Are you house three weeks from now? Does, could, could we get a couple hours in three weeks? What if we were a community that slowed down enough, that said no often enough to make room for mercy? You know, right after this passage, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary, and you're going to find rest. I'm going to give you a yoke that fits. I'm going to give you a burden that's light. It's going to be, I'm going to give you a yoke that's easy. And right after this, he is on his day of rest, his Sabbath, in uh, where he ought to be worshiping with God's people in the synagogue and a man with a withered hand comes to him and, and, uh, and this man needs an act. He needs help. He needs service. He needs Jesus' energy to meet his needs. And Jesus does it. He does it. What if we were a community who had margin to say, yeah, I want to help. Let's do it this week. I'll be there. Now, Rock Creek typically is uncommonly good at that. We really are as a, as a community. But what if we were known as the people who are not grumpy and ready to help? I think those are, that would be great for Jesus' name here on this mountain and uh, in the valleys on either side and all over the city? What if we were the people who said no well enough to be ready to help? Will you come to Jesus? He is a master who has no lack and he loves to give you a yoke that fits and give you rest in the midst of your work. I hope you will. Amen.